good to see you. New faces, old faces, in between faces. It's a pleasure to be here and um, to be able to um, take us through our series and move us along. Um, we're looking at the church, and um, it's one of those things that we've, we, we tend to revisit um, every few years. What does it mean to be the church? What is, what is the expectation of us as we come? And, um, and we know that as, as newer believers come along, this is going to be important for them. Um, and we know also for those who've been believers for a while, it's important for us as well to kind of look and examine what are we doing and how can we, as it were, represent Christ better. So we're looking at this and breaking everything down, and today we're going to be looking at the church's praise, and we're going to be in um, Colossians 3. Um, we're not going to be reading all of it, but we are, we're going to look at a small section of it, but we want to read it at length so that we can understand um, the context into how we then take all that we are and then channel that into um, a productive and healthy church environment. So if you would turn with me to Colossians 1, Colossians 3, verse 1, and we will be reading all the way down to um, 17. So I'll be reading from the ESV, and it says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, Malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, <coughs> as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together 
in perfect harmony. Now, this will, these last few verses will be our focus. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we come to your word with, a, with an open heart, Lord. We are aware there, Lord Father, that as much as I am um, here at the front, actually speaking those things there, Lord God, as hopefully as the oracle of, as your oracle there, Lord God, ultimately it's the, the work of the Spirit there, Lord Father, we are relying on amongst ourselves and even within me. So humbly, Lord God, we ask for your help as we um, endeavor to apply these scriptures into our hearts and into what we do here in Ecclesia. So Lord, as we look at this subject of the church's praise, what is to be um, embedded into what we do, Lord, we pray, Father, for wisdom and courage, dear Lord God, to uh, meet this text where it meets us, dear Lord Father. And may we give way, dear Lord, to you, so that you indeed may be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, by way of titles, I mean, as much as the, our theme today is the church's praise, um, it's about getting the gospel into our DNA. Getting the gospel into our DNA. Now, we know DNA to be those um, um, strands of our colds, these, I guess these, this cold within our own bodies that um, ultimately determine certain things like our physicality, our, even to some extent our attitudes and everything else, how we see the world. And to some extent, what we're talking about being a new creation and putting on Christ as we see here is about how do we accomplish this as a church community, and getting the gospel into our DNA so that we are now acting more out of that than anything else. You know, so we need to get to a place, I believe, where we are more consistently acting within the scope of our Christian identity rather than reacting with it. So what do I mean by that? We are more prone, as it were, to act with the scope of our former selves, that is, who we are, who we who we've always been. We tend to react. We tend to act in that way, and then obviously when we fall, we then tend to react and go, oh, but I'm a Christian. And then we, what we find is that as that kind of happens, and obviously we've, we've, we've obviously all been there, where we're like, oh, now I feel guilty. Now I need to repent. What we can find is that we are more consistently reacting, and therefore we are more passively Christian than we are actively Christian. In other words, our old nature tends to lead, and our, old, our new nature then follows and tries to correct. You know, like, you can imagine, um, 
a headstrong person who walks into, uh, walks everywhere and causes a hazard and your new nature is the person that goes behind um, saying, sorry, 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 everybody, you know, well, pretty much like a parent, really, you know, and a kid, you know, as they bulldoze down the road, as my kids do with um, their scooters, and you're like, oh, sorry, sorry. And that tends to be, so in that sense, is how do we get ourselves where our new nature leads? And it's our old nature that has to ultimately follow and has nothing to say. And so we need to get ourselves moving from that passive Christianity into an active Christianity. And that's the process of what I mean by getting the gospel into our DNA. So that we are, as it were, acting positively with the gospel as a lead. So that means that we need to engage with sanctification on a much intimate, much more intimate level and allow ourselves to be conformed to the identity of Christ. <coughs> the putting on of Christ is not something we should hesitate to do as well. You know, so we all hear these things, you know, put on your whole armor of God, take off the old man and the old ways and, you know, become a new creature in God. But we need to think of this as a, a rather than hesitate, we need to think of this as being a necessary part of putting on the gear we need when we enter a boot camp. So we think about these things where you've maybe you've, en- you've enlisted, so to speak, like maybe when you became a believer. You found yourself enlisted into a movement that now requires all your life. And they give you a bunch of gear as you walk in and, you know, ordinarily you'll have a man or a woman shouting at you, telling you to move on, go into that hut and go and grab some gear and then go over there and, and, and you get this gear. And we need to think about, do you really, as a, say, a new conscript, a new soldier, have a choice in whether you put on that new gear? As you think about what Paul is saying here about putting on Christ, the reality is, is that as a soldier, it's a matter of life or death whether you put on that gear. It's as simple as that. Whether I put on this gear determines whether I live or die. And so therefore, the urgency of the situation is that we ought to act as though we need to do this, as opposed to something we might have to, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe do this at some other point, because we're aware of the cost. This means that we are putting ourselves in for the full course. But then, the reality is, is that we often hesitate because as I said, we know that it will demand a lot of us and maybe habits and things that we're not quite ready to give up. Or maybe we are willing to give up, but we are somehow aware of the power that those things have over us. And so we are somewhat fearful. But the reality is is that going all in, whether we believe we can do it or not, is better than hesitating or becoming what I would say a half-baked Christian. 
I guess one of the, the, the natures of being half-baked is that ultimately you're no, good, you're no longer any good as the raw material and you're no longer, and you're no good unless you're in for the full course. You can't, you're not edible, you're not consumable. In this particular phase, I think, you know, something that C.S. Lewis had stated in his book, Mere Christianity, when um, one of the latter chapters um, is called, Is Christianity Easy or Hard? It's weird enough, I think when I, when I first grabbed that book, it was one of the chapters I read first. When I looked through the chapter list and I said, wow, I really need to know this. Because it was at the point where I was thinking, what am I in for? And it was one of those questions that was burning in my heart. And I just want to share an excerpt with you. It's a long one, but I think it's helpful because it kind of lays the ground for what we're going to be dealing with in terms of being in for the full course and putting on Christ. And he says this, C.S. Lewis says this, The Christian way is hard and easy. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked. The whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Both harder and easier, you have noticed. I expect that Christ himself sometimes describes the Christian way as very hard, sometimes as very easy. He says, take up your cross. In other words, it's like going to be beaten to death in a concentration camp. Next minute, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, my burden light. He means both. And one can just see why both are true. Teachers will tell you that the laziest boy in the class is the one who works hardest in the end. They mean this. If you give two boys, say, a proposition in geometry to do, the one who is prepared to take, double, to take trouble will try to understand it. The lazy boy will try to learn it by heart because, for the moment, that needs less effort. But six months later, when they are preparing for an exam, that lazy boy is doing hours and hours of miserable drudgery over things the other boy understands and positively enjoys. In a few minutes, laziness means more work in the long run. Or look at it this way. In a battle or in mountain climbing, there is often one thing which it takes a lot of pluck to do, but it also, in the long run, the safest thing to do. If you thunk it, you will find yourself hours later in far worse danger. The cowardly thing is also the most dangerous thing. It is like that here. The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and pre precautions to Christ. But it is far easier than what we are trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves. To keep personal habits, happiness as our great aim in life 
and yet at the same time be good. There's such a profound wisdom in that because when I first read that, that whole, especially that last passage there about trying to be myself, trying to retain my old identity to some extent, to, as I always say, trying to be cool as a Christian. It's one of the things I think we're all trying to do. And at the same time, makes our Christian walk so hard. Because to some extent, our own selves are getting in the way. One of the things we, I've, you know, uh, one of the illustrations I'll give is that of, you know, where we are, we're always told by the NHS that we need to make sure we finish a course of antibiotics. Because to some extent, having begun, if we don't finish it, it could actually be more hurtful and harmful, not only to ourselves, but to others as well, if we don't take it all the course. Because in a sense, what it will do is it will get half the work done, and then we'll end up basically maybe getting a cold or a flu that we haven't got the proper protection for. And there's no antibiotics because our body's now used to those, that antibiotic there, but we haven't finished the course. And so it's not been able to do its good work, which is to protect us. And so therefore we find ourselves in danger of not having any more medicine to help. And this obviously damages ourselves and also others. I think the same thing is true about when we become half-baked Christians. We become a danger not only to ourselves, but also to those around us. One of the things I've noticed about, again, what I would consider to be half-baked Christians who fall away, is that they end up being more detrimental to the faith and doing more damage to the faith than any outright persecution ever does. What I also have noticed about those who fall away, because they have not been fully committed, is that they fall into a type of bitterness and a hardness of heart that leaves them completely... um, completely intolerant to the gospel. In other words, they, 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 they build up a veneer and a, and a shell which is more protective. And it seems clear to me that what has happened in life, in their life as a believer, is that what they should have done as a believer, which was to develop that shell against the world, they now develop against the gospel. And they become incredibly resistant to it. And to some extent, whenever they start to hear or any time they feel or sense a conversation is leading towards the gospel, they want to shut it down. And it's something that they've never done, as it were, in their own life. And so it seems that we are not talking about whether people have that ability to do this. It's about what they will do it for, i.e., what will you be completely committed to? Now, I know that wouldn't always be true. But I think if I find in my experience where I've seen people have fallen away, it is mostly true. They are more diligent and they're more, less tolerant to Christians than they were to the world when they were, quote-unquote, believers.
So what I take away from that is that we're not as disinterested in being fully committed to something as we like to stay. So this, I guess, is trying to sum up what Paul is asking us to do by putting on Christ in those first, um, that first section of the text. But now I just want to focus in those last three as, a, as it looks and pertains to us as a church. What does it mean now when we look at what he's asking us to do and what does look at putting on Christ and developing as our praise look like as a church? And so when we look at verse 15... So verse 15, we see the first mark of the, of the, of, of the church in this sense is the, of the praise of church is one of peace. This, I believe, is tricky because we can be content to believe that as long as peace, there is peace between me and God, I have no need to establish peace with anyone else. But Paul makes it clear that we are called to peace in one body. So note that as well. We are, you are called to peace into one body. So in what we call in Pauline theology, body is synonymous with the church. So we're called to be at peace with one another, not merely with God. So the peace we have in Christ that reconciles us to God also reconciles us to one another. This obviously is to be more true in the context of the church as opposed to the world. And so therefore, we are going to fight. We should, it's, it's a, it is aimed at the church. So it's not about this case of, well, I, I, I should see that evidence of peace maybe on, on, you know, in my local community who may be not believers. That reality may not be as true there, but it ought to be as more true within the context of the church than it is anywhere else. So that's the first point I need to make. Here I must also note the call to superficial peace is not what Paul is asking about here. This is not about us just saying, oh, we're called to peace, so let me just hold my tongue. There's Somebody's done something that has really offended me, and, we, and, I, and I say really offended you. And so therefore, let me, you know, I'm called to peace, so maybe I'll just say nothing. But really, I'm still boiling inside. There is no real peace. There is no genuine peace. That's not what God has called us. In other words, it's about a peace that enables us not only to speak our mind in a, in a, in a peaceful way, but also to receive, as it were, criticism or rebuke in a peaceful way. In other words, it's what we do together. If I come and I say, look, this is an issue, that peace is not broken because I made and I raised that issue because the alternative is that we don't speak our mind and we don't say what is really on our hearts. So the call to peace means that we must challenge those things that can so easily enter into the community and erode the peace from within, i.e. we're burning up inside and then we just decide to quietly leave the church because that's the easiest way to deal with the matter. We must confront those issues. Here I also believe that Matthew 18 is being referenced in verse 13. Verse 13 says this, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So that's Matthew 18 summed up in a nutshell, isn't it? 
that picture of the unforgiving servant, the one that was forgiven the huge debt, the debt that he could never pay. Again, you know, we don't understand the old money systems, but that's, when you read a good commentary on it, 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 it describes that what the servant owed the master in Matthew 18 was, was literally billions of pounds. And today it's easiest to think of billions of pounds because it exists, but in the old monetary world where money obviously was scaled down, billions of pounds was, there just wasn't that money in the world. So in other words, he owed a debt that he could not repay. But yet he couldn't forgive someone who owed him a couple of months' wages. And the hypocrisy that came from that. One of the great insults leveled at the church is that of it being hypocritical. I grew up with this. I grew up even thinking it myself. But nothing makes us more hypocritical than our unwillingness to forgive each other as the servants of the master pointed out to his master, to their master. Matthew 18.31 says this, When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, that is, the unforgiving servants not forgiving the other um, servant, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. In other words, because at foundation, the one thing that we all have in common is the community of the forgiven, the least we can do is forgive each other and to be at peace with each other. I believe and I wonder if we have not done ourselves a disservice because it says that these servants were distressed. Should we not likewise be distressed when we see a fellow believer unable to forgive another? I mean, we can shirk it, but the reality is that they were distressed because they saw the hypocrisy of it. As we see in money matters, the whole idea is that we're the community of the forgiven and you can't forgive somebody else what you owe God. And ultimately, it means that what we believe God has forgiven us was really a minor thing. And we're not really who we think we are. But it speaks to what the attitude should be. And I believe that the right posture is one of distress where we don't see two believers able to forgive. This is an acid test, as it were, in what it, will means, what it means to be a person who puts the old life in favor of the new one. In other words, what are you going to do when it comes down to it? An acid test also means that will you survive? Because and it's in that sense, only that which is impervious to the acid will survive. And that is that which is spiritual. I say this to make it clear that our understanding and practice of forgiveness more often than not comes from ourselves, that is our own values, and the surrounding culture. In other words, as we look at the talk shows and we look at the paper and hear people discussing things about how people have been done wrong and people go, well, you know, I would never forgive them and get them out of the house and da-da-da-da-da, all the things that we hear the wisdom of the world, and we tend to have that more as our guide than the Bible of what it means to forgive. We take the culture's perspective and think, well, yeah, well, there's certain things and I can forgive this and I can forgive that. And to some extent, a broken relationship with God really isn't a big deal. Someone who cheats on you, someone who lies to you, someone who does you any kind of dishonest 
um, disrespect, that really is something that you've got to take them to task for. And so often I think, as I said, that, that word of distress means that so often we can be distressed at the wrong things. Rather than being distressed at people not being able to forgive, we tend to be distressed when they do forgive. And I believe that. I've seen this where, you know, especially where you see people who have strong Christian convictions say, I forgive this person for killing my son. We're more distressed at that. And now we really need to think about that. Why are we distressed? They are living out their Christian faith. And people go on, you know, go on their talk shows and say, well, I could never say that. And, you know, da-da-da-da-da, you can't, you know, to lose a child. But the Lord is doing a work in them. <coughs> Something for us to consider. Because we can think, and I think this is also true, because we can think and present numerous arguments and counter-arguments as to why our policy on forgiveness is right, and that's what we do. We can end up defending, um, and I see this with, you know, I've seen this, I've been a believer for 30 years, and I've seen this. People can create elaborate arguments for why they're in a particular state with another believer and, and justify it, but yet they can never do so on biblical grounds. And yet to, deve to develop the counter-argument as to why they should forgive, all of a sudden it's like, you know, they're biblically ignorant. Because all they can see is the offense. And they can't see the context of, I'm actually in the place of the forgiven. And therefore I ought to forgive. The final statement in verse 15 is also quite quite controversial because it says that we are to do this and be thankful within it. In other words, there is none of that brushing the stuff under the carpet. It is to be done out of an attitude of gratitude. Not for what the person has done, but for what Christ has done. And in the context of me being forgiven, I will forgive them. Moving on to verse 16. You know, it's worth considering, considering here that having the word of God dwelling in us richly means something that is key to what follows. In other words, what that, you know, we can pass over, let the word of God dwell in you richly, and we can kind of say, oh, yeah, 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 that's great, and move on and say, and then kind of look at it, it's, you know, speaking to each other in the Psalms, hymns, a spiritual song, and look at that as the content. But I believe that having the word of God dwell in us richly is the key to unpacking what comes next in the verse. What does that mean? I think as we look a bit back a little bit further into verses 9 and 10 of, verse, of Colossians 3, we, we read this, and let me read it to you quickly. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In other words, there's a process of not lying, of being truthful, but also growing in the knowledge of God. In other words, my experiences of God are growing and are, and are enriching me. But I'll speak a little bit more on that in a little while. But So it is often believed that without 
from without Christianity, faith requires that all converts part their brains at the door of the church. And this is one of the things since, I guess, even more so since the Enlightenment, that everybody believes that Christianity is a non-thinking, is, is a, is a non-thinking religion or a non-thinking faith. Come, park your brains at the door, have a great time, come back out, pick up your brains and go and do your job. And even more so, even from within the faith, so that's not, that's not even, no, so that's those people outside of the faith, but even within the faith, we believe that our faith is more genuine when it is experienced and felt, but we become suspicious when it is fought through. And so even for ourselves, we feel that our, 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 our genuine relationship with God is not one where we look at a book, but just something we experienced and felt. And that obviously is something that has been true in so many church communities. And it's easy to see how, because to, in, in a sense, they disarm the argument of this intellectualism because we're encouraged to embrace the fact that we are in a relationship with God. But at the same time, even our, our horizontal relationships, our relationships with one another, we are told to do so with some study and understanding. In other words, I'm supposed to understand who you are. As we have that conversation, I'm supposed to grow in the knowledge. I'm not supposed to take it in hand and just be who I want to be in front of you. 1 Peter 3, 7 says this, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. In other words, I'm supposed to think, well, what, what does my partner need? What does my wife need? What does my husband need? What do my children like? Think those things through. How can I adjust my behavior to all those people's needs as I relate to them? To remember little facts about people. Again, I work as a chaplain. And that's one of the things is keeping track of where people are. And when you come and you're like going, all right, okay, he was going through this, da, da, da. And be able to come and say, how is that going? That takes some thinking through. It takes good listening. And not just on the experience and say that every, and treat every relationship I have as, well, whatever, the, the only thing that's authentic is what happens between us now. And I don't really have to remember anything again. But to remember where we were last time. To remember what we like, what we don't like. Remember what our issues are. And to be able to respond to each other. In other words, that's dwelling with each other in understanding. It's thinking hard about that. And obviously, the more we pray about each other, the more we start to understand who each other are, who each other is. So again, <laughs> we are to do some work. So in order to understand someone, we need to dig deep and start to ask questions and seek answers. Our primary source for getting to understand how God has revealed himself is the Bible. It's God's self-disclosure of himself. He has revealed, this is who I am in the history of mankind, not just what we see visibly of him, as it were, maybe on Mount Sinai, but how we see him revealed in history, how he says, I was behind that situation. And those things are to be, obviously, our guide to seeing who God is and how we are to relate to him. It is not good enough to build our own personal gospel and cherish our own cultural norms over what God has revealed. Nothing speaks to this better than Jesus' dialogue with the woman at the well. And I want to read 
a, a short excerpt from John 4, 19 to 24 for that very matter. So Jesus has met the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, and he's in the midst of a conversation, and towards the end, he says this. And the woman said to him, Sir, after he tells her that she's been married several times, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our father worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. When it comes to worship, it appears that Jesus believes that you cannot separate the spiritual aspect of it from the truth. The woman believes that she had a cultural right to worship God within her own tradition. But Jesus plainly tells her she has no idea what she is doing. She didn't realize that her worshiping there had nothing to do with Jacob, but had everything to do with a, a, a past king, Jeroboam, who was hell-bent on idol worship and solidifying his political power. But she thought she was worshiping God. And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're doing. Salvation is of the Jews. In other words, God never removed true worship from Jerusalem. You have separated yourself from God. And now I'm trying to bring you back to the truth. So as much as she believed that she was spiritual and she was already in the place where she needed to be, there was that issue, outstanding issue of the fact that she was not doing so in truth. And to some extent, as much as she believed that she had the spirit, Jesus says, actually, you need both spirit and truth. So even those people who claim that they're worshipping God in the spirit have neither. They, know, they don't even have the spirit if you don't have truth. He is the spirit of truth and he will come and he will speak to those things which the Father tells them. And yet we find so often places where people have said, I'm, in, I'm engaged in spiritual, a, a spiritual worship, they have gone so far away from what God has revealed in his word about who he is and have not paid close attention to those things which honors him. It is from this rich knowledge of God that we are to bring forth our songs, hence the next part of spiritual songs and psalms. I like to think of that term rich in the way that cookery terms something to be rich as being well marinated, full of body and flavor, you know, thinking of Greg on, you know, on MasterChef, that, that you've you got such rich flavors do you know what I mean? You know, that's that term that comes because you've really got the seasoning in there. You've really marinated that well. You've let it cook well. And that's what helps me to understand what does it mean? Because in other words, you never got that by cooking that quickly. All that idea of richness, when you think, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a half-decent cook. 
And I know that if you want good flavors, it takes time. And all of you guys that are half-decent cooks now realize that thing's got to marinate. You've got to work from beforehand in order to get that richness. And so when I think of that term, letting the word of God dwell in us richly, it's that which I'm thinking of. That which has saturated our lives is true to us. That, that meat has married to that seasoning. You cannot separate it from it anymore. And now that it's been done, it's, been, it's now been stewing in application. Do you know what I mean? The word has gone in, it's been rubbed in to the meat. I know that some of the people don't like this, but you need to get your hands into the meat. And now, it, so, it, so it can't separate, and so that now it's stayed overnight, and now you've applied it, and you put it in, and you put it in heat. So this is all the situations that are coming at you, and you're just responding to it, and then the more the heat is coming, it's just bringing all those flavors together. And it's, it's, the, it's the fact that you're enduring some trials even through patience, right? And so it's stewing over long periods of time. So when you teach something and you're encouraging another person, you're not doing so from some shallow kind of like sentimentality. You're doing it from, I'm living this and I'm giving it to you. This is why admonishing each other, that's, that sec- that's the other part of, of what he's saying there in this verse, isn't it? That when we're talking to each other, we're not just giving people platitudes, but we're giving stuff that's really working in our lives. The word richly dwelling in us. We can't separate ourselves from the word. That we're like the disciples. Even when we're going through things we don't understand and we're learning things we don't understand. And the Lord says, what are you going to do? Are you going to leave me too? And he says, where will I go? I'm trapped, Lord. You've trapped me. I have nowhere else to go. I've put everything in you. That's that putting on of Christ. I have staked everything in you. I can't separate myself from your word. It's my life. Do you feel that way? And if you don't, are you allowing the the word of God to dwell in you richly? Are you reading Are you meditating on it? And are you applying it and living it through? Our ability to see our lives and even history from the perspective of God's word will cause us to see his word living and breathing through all that we do. Our interactions with one another, as I said, our singing and our songs need to flow with that knowledge of God. And that one can only happen if we pick up our Bibles and read, meditate, and apply it to our lives. And this will indeed be a part of putting on of Christ, you know. Has any, have, I mean, I was, I was watching something on, um, on YouTube the other day about the, uh, some of the things that sometimes that when I'm at work, I like to explain the history of some songs. And it is well, the song, it is well with my soul. When you hear the history of where that song came from, when you know the history, and there's a, there was a great react, um, reenactment with um, you know, top actors in, um, in the Royal Festival Hall, and I was watching that reenactment of what happened and how this man and his wife lost so many of their children. And when he got the communique that his wife and all their children had died, that song was birthed out of that experience. It is well with my soul. 
it is well. You know, there's a proverb that says that if you fail on the day of testing, your faith is weak. And I believe that. And it's not to say that we are all going to be A-level Christianities where we can meet that and be able to react to that. But it should be something we aim for. That a, a, a major tragedy can lick our lives and we're able to be like a Job, say, naked I came into this world and naked I leave. Even though he slayed me, yet I will trust him. That's the aim. That's what we're aiming for. Nothing less. And if we're not in for the course, if we're not going to put on Christ, you will fail. Trust me. It is well. Please note that also this verse rounds off with a reminder to be Thankful. Verse 17. Paul now expands this attitude of gratitude to be applied to all that we do. I suspect that the type of thankfulness that Paul speaks of here is not one merely of hope for the future, of the hope in the finished work of God. In other words, it's not just, I hope God has saved me. I hope God has blessed me. But the finished work of Christ, we, but because of the finished work of Christ, we are fully embraced in faith what God has already given to us. In other words, that thankfulness is not some kind of like desperation to, to, in, in hope that we, we, we will somehow meet the mark, but that we are actually thankful for what we've already got. This is something we're dealing with in the Bible study at the moment, that we are believing the promises of God and that ultimately, as we see that those things are, 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 are sealed and are finished, that our righteousness is something not, not with a question mark over it, that our thankfulness really flows from something that we believe that God has already given us. That our thankfulness is, tr- is truly, solidly rooted So our response to all that God has done for us is to be of one of gratitude. In other words, when we think of this in, in, the, in, in the area of application, is that the, the monumental, the most monumental act in your whole life, when you think of your, your, you know, your marriages, your, the birth of your children, eclipsing all of that is this monumental fact of you believing that God has forgiven me of a debt I could not pay. And it becomes the foundation of who we are. So our thankfulness is not so much rooted in whether we got out of the right side of the bed. How I feel that particular day. But the reminder that ultimately I am forgiven today as I was yesterday and I will be tomorrow. And that because of that, that thankfulness roots us. And everything flows from that thankfulness. Everything. So this attitude of gratitude does not flow from just a mere 
optimistic mindset, but from the finished work of Christ on the cross. He really did die for us. He really did give us his life for ours. And as I consider that and as I think on that, thinking back to Matthew 18 again, our great debt has been paid. And for that we must be thankful. The gift should be, as I said, the most monumental thing in our lives. All that is now required of us is that we live a life of love and faith that acknowledges this great redemption. And that, I believe, is the church's praise. It's not to be narrowed down to the fast and cheerful songs, you know, the upbeat songs that we sing, which I guess there was a real grappling. And I said, Lord, I don't know how to deal with this subject, the church's praise. But I think the more I studied, the more I kind of thought through this thing, I started to see, actually, every one of these last verses comes with thankfulness. In other words, that praise... And the thankfulness of the believer is the undergirding of all that we are. It's that we're stuck, we're stuck and we're still stunned by the gratitude, to, by the generosity of God towards us. And that encapsulates us and we are transformed just as much as we were to, from, the, from the first day that we received Christ right up until now. That we are so encapsulated that, that the church is praise. So much so that we cannot be um, holding each other in contempt, that our peace is genuine, that the word of God that we want to know about this person that has been so good to us is, is dwelling in us richly. And that because it dwells in us richly, we're able to speak to one another in such a way that that thankfulness overflows in great songs like it is well. It overflows into great communications when we are encouraged by somebody who sees us struggling and they come and they say, look, this is what the Lord has been doing in my life. I believe he wants to do something similar in your life. And we encourage because we see it's genuine. And that everything we do flows from this attitude, as Paul says here in that verse 17, flows from that thankfulness and gratitude to God. So the, actual, the, the praise of the church is actually more broader to include our whole attitude to what we do as a community. And when you look at it, you see how important this is as a fundamental of what we do. That our praise flows from this community of the forgiven. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.